Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne one more time this morning to worship your name. Your name that is a holy name that is separate from all things. And we come also to worship your Son who is separate from all sinners, holy, innocent, and undefiled. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for gathering us this morning as your people whom Christ redeemed by his faithful obedience, by his own blood, by his own death, that we who had no righteousness could attain to the righteousness that you required of us. And Lord, we praise you for your grace towards your people. We praise you, Lord, for your faith that you've given freely to your people. We praise you, Lord, for free justification, free redemption, free salvation, free adoption. We thank you, Lord, for your word again. And we ask that you may give us understanding of what says the Lord as we had been talking about earlier that the gospel is assumed, Jesus Christ is assumed, and men assume that they will just show up to heaven based on their own works. But the Lord Jesus Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Lord, we pray that we may not be counted among those who come to present their own works, but only to come standing on what Christ has accomplished. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John 6, verses 15 to 21. John 6, 15 to 21. This is what he says. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now this miracle, this account is recorded in three of the Gospels except Luke. Everybody else, Mark, Matthew, and John have an account of this miracle. And we're going to read Mark's account of the same miracle because he has some detail. We'll refer to some accounts of Matthew because Matthew also gives some detail that the other two did not provide. And we'll talk to each of those things as when necessary. But let's read what Mark says in Mark 6, 45-52. Mark six forty five to fifty two. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loves, but their heart was hardened. Sounds like Mark was a sovereign grace preacher. <laughs> and of course, we know the story that's behind this story is the feeding of the 5,000. So it, this story happens in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. And for our title, it's going to be, And they were afraid, or the wind was contrary. And the wind was contrary. John's thesis, John's goal, is to teach you that Jesus is God. And he has been working his teaching to show us by Jesus' works and his self-testimony that he is the Son of God. And so Jesus has just fed the great multitude of 5,000 men, which we said, depending on how you do the math, is going to be ten to 20,000 people. And Jesus has fed these many people with just five barley loaves of bread and two fish, and they were all filled, and they were leftovers. And of course, we need a king like that. We have to make Jesus king. Free loaves and free fish. And maybe he pays rent for free too. Jesus demonstrates again his divine power over the elements of his creation. Because this Jesus cannot be the one who created all things and not have power over his creation. For John has told us that for all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, according to John, is more than the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus is more than just a prophet. Jesus is God himself. He is the Logos. He is the word of God who has been made flesh. Who has taken up flesh to himself. He was in the beginning with God. But as God, he has come on a mission. And his mission is not to put up a show, but to save his own people from sin. But his people stumble at him. Their hearts were hardened. 
as to see or perceive him for who he was. His people stumble at him because of his unusual packaging. It's a packaging issue. This logos, this word of God, has clothed himself with human flesh for the work of salvation. And because of that, he looks too familiar and ordinary to sinful men. He is a carpenter and has brothers and sisters. And he is from Nazareth. And there's no good thing that should come out of Nazareth according to Nathaniel. But Jesus cannot be known unless God has revealed him to a person. Jesus cannot be known outside God revealing him to each individual person. And this is what Jesus himself said. And this was Jesus' understanding of how anybody comes to know him. This is what he said in Matthew eleven. 25 to 27. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Jesus praises the Father for hiding the things of Christ from people. That is not the God that we are hearing from a lot of places. From the wise and the intelligent, but has revealed them to the infants, that is those who humbly come by faith. Those are the infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. This was God's good pleasure to hide Jesus from some people. Oh, I thought Jesus wanted to save everybody. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the Son has to be willing to reveal the Father to you. And if the Son reveals the Father to you, guess what? The Father will also reveal the Son to you. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 1-2. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is the arm of the Lord? It's Jesus. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant or a tender shoot depending on your translation before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there's no beauty that we should desire him no beauty jesus is not tom cruise (laughs) no form or comeliness that men should run to him And say, oh Jesus, can you sign my autograph? Sign for me, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus cannot be known outside him willing to reveal himself to you. 
And in Matthew 16, 13 to 17, Jesus talks about the revelation of himself by the Father and the true confession of the person of Jesus. This is what Matthew says, Matthew 16, 13 to 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. That is a double confession of the person of Jesus. He not only is the Christ, but he is qualified to be the Christ because he is the Son of the living God. The Christ speaks to his humanity, his human nature. The son of the living God speaks to his deity. According to the theology of John. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood cannot reveal Jesus to you. God the Father has to reveal Jesus to you that you may come to him by faith. And many minimize that. They think that Jesus, oh, Jesus is so obvious. The only thing that you need to do is come and make him Lord and Savior. No, Jesus has to be revealed. No man can know who Jesus is unless he is revealed to that person by God and when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he didn't say, well, the confession by other men, that was close enough. I think they'll get a B plus for that. Jesus doesn't even entertain what they say. He doesn't even entertain their opinion of him. And yet the professing church, the professing church word is busy trying to make Jesus attractive to the world with trinkets and smoke machines. But Jesus is not known that way with a big trash can <laughs> and smoke machine and just be blowing smoke out of the big trash can like we saw on TBN. Jesus has to be revealed to a person who belongs to him. The Father has to reveal Christ. The Son has to reveal the Father. The Son has to reveal himself to you. The Holy Spirit has to reveal Christ to you. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. But what is to know the Son? What is to know Christ? A lot of people would say it is to be baptized, it is to go to church, it is to sing in the choir. To know Christ is more than that. All those things do not help you to know Christ. 
to know Christ is only the work of God. It cannot be by anything that any man could do for you. To know Christ is to be immersed by Christ himself into the Holy Spirit. It is to be baptized by Jesus into or by the Holy Spirit. It is to have a proper Christological confession of him is to have the proper confession of Jesus, of the person of Jesus as God and sinless man, the God-man. Because without that, you have no salvation. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life cannot be had by doing good and feeding the poor and casting out demons and performing miracles and being a good neighbor, a good husband, a good wife. It is impossible. Eternal life is only had by knowing God and Jesus Christ. Christ and we know Jesus only by faith through the revelation of God and we know God only through Jesus Christ you cannot know God outside Jesus Christ for no man has seen God at any time but he who is in the bosom of the father he has exegeted him. He has explained him. So if you would want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. But there's even a more important element to knowing who God is. There is no knowing God without going through the cross. It's impossible. You can't know God without the cross. To understand and believe the work of Jesus on the cross is to know God. And it is to have eternal life. To know the cross is to know that Jesus died to save his people. Jesus died not to make salvation possible as some are teaching. And that is an evil and false teaching. A God who dies cannot make salvation possible. If God does it, he completes it. He never leaves anything to be done by you. Jesus completed and perfected the salvation of his people. Because he's God. Those who come to Christ... Do so not to complete salvation, but because they are saved. It seems to be a minor difference, but it's a whole world of difference. You do not come to Christ to complete the salvation in Christ. You come to Christ because Christ already paid for you. You belong to him. Faith does not complete salvation, but it is a result of salvation. Salvation was accomplished by Jesus 2,000 years ago on Mount Calvary. 
And because that work was accomplished, God gives us faith as a gift, as a receipt to say you belong to Christ and your salvation was completed in him. And to know Jesus Christ is to know God. Because Jesus is the name of God. Jesus is... What's the name of God? It's Jesus. His name is Emmanuel. That is God with us. But hear this from Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. What is the name that is above every name? We have a lot of names. We have Gabriel, the angels. We have Michael, the archangel. They have names, but there's a name which is above all names. So that at the name of what? Of who? <laughs> at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, or I thought in heaven only God is supposed to be worshipped. So why are you bowing to this Jesus? Because he has the name that is above all names. He is God himself. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But where did Apostle Paul get that understanding from? Where did he get it from? Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 22-24. This is what God says. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Every tongue will confess. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. I am God and there is no other. And this same God is Jesus. It is saying Jesus Christ is God. Because God alone can save. Salvation can only be accomplished by God. Men do not know that. Even professing Christians don't know that. Salvation is not in your stopping to do some things. Or starting to do some other things. And yet when you get saved, you stop doing some things. You start singing a new song. You start to have 
a taste for things that you did not have a taste for. Suddenly, you find flavor in the things of Christ. Salvation is not in what we stopped doing or we started doing. Salvation is in what Christ did. Muslims stopped doing some things. Buddhists the same. The Hindus. The Church of Scientology. Tom Cruise and company. Madonna and Kabbalah. And even Alcoholic Anonymous. They also have things that they have stopped doing. And they have started doing some things. They all have some moral code. But you need more than a moral code to have righteousness. They are not saved because of what they began to do or what they stopped doing. Sin is more than just stopping to do some things. Sin is in the constitution of all fallen men. Men sin even in their sleep. Just dreaming and sinning away. Just by yourself. But unless they repent, that is, turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he is God, they will not be saved. You need more than covering your eyes or your head and not eating certain kinds of food to have everlasting righteousness. Salvation requires more than turning away from your sin, but is about turning away from your self-righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. Salvation is in God turning away from Christ because of your sin. You see, there are two turning aways. And there's only one turning away that actually provides salvation. Is the turning away of God from Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is how sin is removed. When Jesus gets punished on the cross. Sin and its judgment can only be crucified on the tree of shame, the cross of Jesus Christ. Salvation is about turning to Jesus Christ and having the true confession in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he is God. Jesus will not accept anything less than who he is. And all those churches, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, who bring a Jesus who is less than God, have a false gospel. And Jesus will not accept any testimony of, oh, he is Elijah, he is Jeremiah. Jesus is not even going to entertain that. 
unless you say he is the Christ, the son of the living God, then Jesus says, blessed are you. It's a blessing to know who Christ is. So it doesn't matter what pretensions people and men of religion have or claim to have. The deity and the person of Jesus as God is the foundation and pillar of salvation. And there's no other. There's no other. If you deny that Jesus Christ is God, you have nothing to do with him. And if you deny that he came in the flesh, you have nothing to do with him. Because that is what qualifies him to be our savior. So having said that, we are talking about the deity of Christ and we are going to prove from the miracle of Jesus walking on the water that that miracle was given to give the testimony that Jesus is God. That's the purpose of that miracle. And we are going to work it from the scriptures and show you some things. So having said that, Jesus has demonstrated his divine power as God by feeding the great multitude in John 6, 1 to 15. But now he has instructed the crowd to go away. He has instructed his own disciples to go further ahead of him into the boat to Bethsaida. And in the meantime, he stays behind and goes to the mountain to pray. So we pick up from John 6, 16. And John says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So the disciples got into the boat around 6 p.m., evening time. And Jesus stayed on land. And at this time, Jesus had not yet come to them. But how was Jesus supposed to come to them when they were already rowing in the middle of the sea? Why did John say that? Because John says in verse 17, it had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. How were they expecting him to show up without a boat? That is a very curious statement by John, but we shall soon discover what John would have us understand about this person of Jesus. Verse 18 of John 6. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. The wind was contrary. The sea began to be tempestuous because the wind had raised up the waves of the sea. And it was blowing strongly against them that they come to their wit's end. But whilst this was happening, this was all in Jesus' view. This was all in Jesus' view. John does not tell us that, but Mark does in Mark 6.48. Mark 6.48, Mark says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. So Jesus saw them straining at the oars. And an oar is just a paw with a flat blade. 
pivoting in an lock. They have, I don't know if they had it that way, but I think that's how it was done. That technology has not really changed. <laughs> they didn't have the engines in the back. You had to do it that way. Used to roll or stare a boat through the water. So they're rowing. And at about the fourth watch of the night, which was between four and six in the morning. Remember the time that they began? About six, just after 6 p.m. And it's almost four, six in the morning, and they're still rowing. He came to them, and walking on the sea, he intended to pass by them. So essentially, the disciples have been straining to control the boat for about eight to 12 hours. And they only have sailed for three to four miles. Not much progress there. But hear what Mark says in Mark 6 9. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, their immediate thought was, Run! <laughs> but there was no way to run. <laughs> this has to be a ghost. And we are so drowned. So they cried out because they were all terrified. So the disciples were terrified not only because of the wind that was battering their boat, but of this ghost who has come to make sure that they sink and become fish food. But listen to what Mark says again in Mark 6.50. But immediately... He spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. So just at the time that their hearts sank, Jesus immediately spoke to dissuade them of their fear and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Those are some very sweet words to hear amidst the storms that are about to take you down to the bottom of the sea. Jesus shows up just in time and says, Peace be still, do not be afraid of the storms or myself. You are safe. Not even a hair of your head will drop to the ground. And so Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind stopped immediately and of course they were utterly astonished. And one has to be utterly astonished when you have come to the end of yourself. And then from nowhere, the wind that was threatening to break their boat suddenly stops. And what a sigh of relief. And what appeared to be a ghost is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What a sense of relief. And John says, we pick up in John 6.21, John says, And so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So immediately the wind stopped, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Do not miss the emphasis by John 
that immediately the storms were calmed. And immediately they were on the shore. Remember, they were still in the middle of the sea. But immediately, how did that happen? How did we get from traveling at less than half a mile per hour to 1,000 miles per second? That is the power of the Lord. John is communicating something to us about the person of Jesus. And as I was reading this, I could not help but think of going to heaven itself because I don't know how far heaven is from here. If it takes the, the measure in light years, 20 trillion light years, how are you going to get there? Even with the space shuttle going at 40,000 miles per hour, it will take almost eternity to get there. And so I was thinking that when the saints die, this is how God transports them there. Because when Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. So the means of transportation is just mind-blowing. It's by the power of God. It's very non-invasive. But before you know it, just like in a blink of an eye, you're there. How did I get there? That's exactly what I think is going to happen at the point of death for those who belong to Christ. He brings them by his power to himself. And I thought I would just throw that one for free. But we have a lot of good theology. We have a, a lot of good theology. We have additional data from Matthew about the same miracle that has some nuggets that I wanted to share with you. In Matthew 14, verses 28 to 33, this is what Matthew records for us. He says, And Peter answered him, this is after the Lord had showed himself, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, All you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Matthew records that Christological confession of the person of Jesus. As I said earlier, all the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, record this miracle for us. But Matthew gives us the extra nugget that when Jesus entered into the boat, they all worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's not miss that because it's an important understanding. So Jesus is proving again by this miracle that he is God. He has fed the 5,000. He has calmed the storm. And he is walking on water. His works testify of him. But there's more. There's more. Remember when Jonah was commissioned 
by the Lord to go to Nineveh. But he instead decided to take the Mediterranean cruise ship to Tashish, contrary to the command of the Lord. And we know that did not go very well. It did not go very well for him and the mariners with whom he had hitched a hike. In Jonah 1, 4-5, we are told, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the Lord. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down and was fast asleep. Here again, what Jonah records for us in Jonah 1.11. He says, Then they said to him, These are the mariners, the sailors. What shall we do to you that the sea may become for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. He said to them, that is Jonah, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men roared desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming, the sea was becoming stormier against them. So the question that we have to answer to understand what is happening in this miracle is, who sent the wind against the disciples of the Lord? Were the disciples just unfortunate that on this night the weatherman had had a wrong weather focus? Or if they belonged to the modern day Pentecostal churches, they would say, the devil is a liar. He is the one who raised up the storm against them. So let us rebuke the devil. Or did this happen by chance? As many would say. And then Jesus just happened to be there and showed up to rescue a situation that had nothing to do with him. Is that right? No. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Go to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, 23 to 32. Psalm 107, 23 to 32. Some went down to the sea in ships. Doing business on the great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired heaven. 
Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now that's brilliant theology. Psalm 107.25 For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. It was not the devil who commanded and raised up the stormy wind but the Lord God himself and you see where this is going? But who is the Lord God? It is he who said take courage it is I. Do not be afraid. It is he who raised the storm for the disciples. Listen to this. If you just read the English translation of the statement, it is I. You won't get what that is saying. There's more to that expression of it is I. The Greek word for that is ego and me. E-G-O. E-I-M-I, which means I am. The same word translated before Abraham was I am. And you know what happened when Jesus said that? The Jews picked up stones to stone him for it, for blasphemy, because they knew exactly what he was claiming. They understood him to be saying he is the God who met Moses in the burning bush and said, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates, I am who I am the same way the New Testament does the statements of Jesus. And this is the reason why the disciples worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. That is a statement of deity. So it is this one, this Jesus, who commanded the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and not the devil. And this was not by chance. But this was not because the disciples had done anything sinful, as you would hear from a lot of pulpits. When something bad happens, it's because you did something. But it was so that they would cry out to the Lord so that he would deliver them. I'm sure the disciples of Jesus had been crying out to the Lord all this time. But he did not come. But his not coming was not because he was not aware of what was happening. Mark tells us that Jesus saw them straining at the oars, trying to control and steer the boat. But he delayed, like he delayed to come and heal Lazarus. So that Lazarus would die. Jesus purposefully delayed to come to Lazarus, that Lazarus would die, that God may be glorified. But why they delay Jesus in this situation? Listen to Psalm 107, 27. These verses that I just showed you in Psalm 107, you have to highlight them in your Bible. They are very, very important. 
to show people understanding of who actually is in control of what. Psalm 107, 27 again. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. If you would know Jesus and have to come to Jesus, your courage, your confidence in your own ability and righteousness has to melt away. Remember who these men were. These were great fishermen. Like Peter and Andrew. These are masters of the waters. Who all their lives have been doing great business on the waters. Fishing. And they know their way in and around the water. But the Lord has to teach them about their inability to save themselves. And to teach them who he is. And because until God shows you your inability, you won't know who Jesus is. Unless the Lord shows you your inability to be righteous. Even in the very familiar waters, in the very everyday things that you do, seemingly routine things, you continue to think, you're okay. You're doing better than such and such a person. You continue in your stubbornness to roar against the wind that is contrary to you, but to no avail. You continue to want to establish your own righteousness and being very religious and yet hating the very doctrines of Jesus who saves. People profess to believe in Jesus. As long as they think he is helping them as their co-pilot to get themselves saved. But when the scriptures come and say, no, Jesus does not help you to get saved, they get mad. They'll say, but what about my will? What about my responsibility? Who told you you have a free will? It's not in the scriptures. It's not given as a reason why one gets saved and the other does not. The sovereign will of God is what is given as a reason why some people get saved and others are not. Jesus does not help anyone on their project or in their project of self-salvation. When Jesus saves, he saves by himself. He says by himself alone and completely. And before you can avail yourself to who Jesus is, you need to be shown that you are an unclean thing before the Lord. That your best works of righteousness are like a filthy rag. That your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You have to come to the knowledge that in you dwells nothing good that is pleasing to God and that you are unable to do anything about it. And so the Lord does order storms. He has a storms on demand channel. <laughs> that we may stagger like drunken men and come to the end of ourselves. 
He will order us storms of conviction. Conviction of our sin. And causes us to see no righteousness in ourselves. That we may cry out to him and to look up to him. I know of a sister on Facebook right now. She is in a terrible mess. There's so much conviction going on in her right now. She is just in tatters. And I know she is on the boat with the disciples. That's what is happening. They may have made a confession of Jesus at some time in their lives. But it is just the way of God's doing that when you come to him, there has to be some storms of some kind. It's going to happen either at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, but it's going to happen. There's no true child of God who shall not go through the storms of conviction, of sin, and also the storms of life. The ring of free Christianity, God wants you to have your best life now. (laughs) You name it and claim it. It's nonsense teaching. And it's a false gospel. It's not taught in the Bible. The purpose of the Lord bringing storms is so that you may cry out to the Lord in trouble. Because if men knew that they were in trouble, they would cry out. If men knew that they were in trouble, they would cry out. And if God does not bring trouble to them, they will never cry out. So praise the Lord for bringing trouble. Because it's coming at his command that you may be moved to cry out to him. But all sinners are in trouble, but they don't know it. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And if the Lord does not come and awaken us to our deeper trouble by the storms of conviction of sin, we think we're okay. We just keep sleeping. Just wake up in the morning, just get your tablet and just be checking the magazines. Life is good. And you get your cooking show on, get your breakfast, life is good. And in the meantime, time is ticking away and eternity is drawing closer and closer. And the, the, the death angels are coming to get you. The death angels are coming. We don't know how far they are, but they are coming. They may be two weeks away. Two months away, two years from now, but we know they're coming. So if the Lord does not cause us to cry out to him, we will never cry out to him. We will find some other temporary coping mechanism to deal with our trying circumstances and we will die in our sins. And unless the Lord comes, we will never look for him. And unless he comes and rebukes the storms, you shall forever be straining at the oars, always working, always working to be accepted by God, but never reaching your desired destination, never reaching acceptance by God, always working until you die. But hear this. Psalm 107 
29-32. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired heaven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So the storms that have been ordered by the Lord, that we have gone through, the storms of losing loved ones, the storms of job losses, the problems at work, divorce, the problems with children. Yes, they are due to sin, but it is the Lord who raises them up that we may cry out to him. See the desired effect on the part of the Lord. The Lord has one reason that he brings them. Listen. It is he who made the storm to still. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. But see also that the Lord did not just rebuke the storm. He also brought them to their desired heaven. The disciples by themselves could not make it to their desired heaven, which was Bethsaida in this context, no matter how they tried. And it has not changed in terms of salvation. In salvation as in life, unless the Lord speaks, you will be able to do nothing. Without me, you do everything. Is that what Jesus said? <laughs> without me, you do nothing. You won't be able to do anything without Christ. Here's some point that I need you to get as we are working this. We are getting close to an end. Remember, it is Jesus who commanded them to go to Bethsaida. It is Jesus. But they could not make it by themselves. For 10 something hours they were sailing and they could not make more than 3 to 4 miles. Yes, the Lord commands men, all men to repent and believe in Jesus that they may be forgiven of sin and reach their desired heaven. But they will not repent by themselves and their power because they can't make it by themselves and their power. This training with the oars is a show, is a picture of men's total inability to serve themselves. Men are not able to get to where Jesus or God is saying for them to go. But when Jesus shows up, guess what? That storm which was contrary to them is removed. And immediately they reached their desired heaven, not by their power, but by his alone. They, they were not even rowing the boat anymore. Immediately, by his power alone, they got to their desired end. And that is how salvation works. There's no man who is rowing their way to heaven. Good luck. We'll see you when you get there. The person who is under conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit we will not rest until 
And unless the Lord shows up to teach them about himself. I need to get this. The Lord has to teach you his sufficiency in all things pertaining to your acceptance by God. If Jesus does not teach you by the Holy Spirit that he accomplished the work of salvation and you are completely accepted in him, you shall never be able to calm the storm that comes because of that lack of assurance. It's only the Lord who can give peace through the teaching of his word. It's only the Lord who can give you peace that it is well with your soul. But when that happens, immediately the storms of conviction are quieted down. You may have been struggling for two years, ten years, just rowing the boat. Rowing, 15 years, you are rowing the boat. And still, there's no assurance. The Pope is still rowing his boat. But we know the way of peace. The only way you get peace is when the Lord shows up. When Jesus showed up and he was in the boat with them, guess what? Everything was good. There was no one who was afraid anymore. Even for us, remember these things are not just for the show of power. These are pictures of salvation. Water is for judgment. The waters and the storms are for judgment. And that judgment can only be removed when this one shows up. So the Lord, when he gives you peace, he tells you, that you have peace with God because of his imputed righteousness. Without that, you can never have enough righteousness to say, I think I have attained my peace with God. The Lord has given confidence and has to give you confidence only through what Christ has accomplished. And the Lord has to teach you that because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, there's no one who shall ever bring a charge against you. It doesn't matter your stumblings between now and the grave. No one can condemn. Nobody. No one can bring a charge. Even yourself. You can't bring a charge against yourself. And until you understand that, there's no peace. You're still on the Sea of Galilee. Rowing. At midnight, you're rowing. Never getting there. But hear this. The disciples, this some um, application, like I always say, I don't do application. <laughs> but this is brilliant stuff. So you got to hear it. The disciples got in trouble on a mission that Jesus had sent them. And the trouble that he, Jesus himself, caused. And Peter sinks on a mission that Jesus had given him permission to do. Lord, can I come to you? And the Lord says, come. The Lord gave him permission. It is the Lord himself who instructed the disciples to go to Bethsaida ahead of him 
And yet we find the same Lord raising a storm that almost destroyed them in the sea. And yet we're not consumed. They almost got destroyed. They were on the edge. Remember the edge. <laughs> but they were not consumed. Apostle Peter, when he had learned that it was the Lord who was walking on the water, he said, I want to walk on the water too. Can I come to you? He just said, okay, come. <laughs> Listen to this. Matthew 14, 28 to 31. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Peter asked the Lord if he could come to him. And the Lord said, Yes, of course, Peter. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on water and came to Jesus. But as he was coming to Jesus, he saw the wind. And he was afraid. And he began to sink. And he cried out. Five things there. Very important. Peter asked to come. And he was given permission. Peter is on water. He sees the wind. And Peter is afraid. And because Peter is afraid. He began to sink. And because he was beginning to sink. He cried out. And said Lord save me. <laughs> What are we to learn? Just like the disciples who almost drowned on a mission that Jesus had sent them. Peter almost drowns following a command of the Lord. What is that saying? Following Jesus' command can get you in trouble. Following the command of Jesus will get you in trouble. But how? Peter did not begin to sink until he took his eyes off of Jesus. As long as Peter has his eyes on Jesus, Peter is walking all the way to Bethsaida. And you too, even though you have been with Jesus and have been following the command of the Lord, you have been following, you have been believing upon Jesus and his gospel, you also begin to sink if you look to the wind and storms of your life. You do not look to the object of your fear, but to the object of your hope. Peter was afraid of the wind. So he looked at the wind that could not deliver him, instead of looking to Christ who could deliver him. So Peter looked at the wind, at the object of his fear, and he took his eyes of Christ. And you too will begin to sink if you pay too much attention to the winds of your life to the exclusion of looking to Jesus. You end up not hearing or seeing Jesus. You end up following myths. You end up following and going to this conference and that conference. Bring some more booklets, put them on the shelf. Come back next year, get more books, 
And before you know it, you have already gone. You have drifted. Okay, listen to this. Very important for you, Jenny. When Peter was sinking, the other disciples who were in the boat did not know that Peter was sinking. The other disciples did not know that Peter was sinking. Only Jesus and Peter knew that Peter was beginning to sink. (laughs) And in this Christian walk, in this Christian journey, we also may look to our winds and be afraid and begin to sink and no one around us would know that we are sinking but ourselves and Jesus. Brothers 10, you can actually begin to sink without hand knowing. I think you're sinking. <laughs> Cry out, brother. Lord, save me. So you can begin to sink and no one around you not know that you're sinking. Except you and Jesus. But praise the Lord that he knows when we are sinking. But if you feel like you are beginning to sink, because Peter has not sunk, he is beginning to sink. Peter gives us the way of escape. Peter said, go by the seven steps. <laughs> no. <laughs> Peter says, <laughs> you need to get some anointing oil. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. <laughs> you got to walk in victory. No. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And, and, and that's a confession that Jesus honors. Peter is a sovereign grace preacher. Lord, save me. Not my free will. <laughs> my free will can't help me. It's causing me to look to the stones. <laughs> Not to Jesus. <laughs> Lord, save me. And that is the way of escape. And that is the way of salvation in all things. And that is the gospel of grace. No time for indulgences. No time for making an appointment with the priest. No time for singing in the choir. No time for bowing to a statue of Mary. There's only enough time to say, Lord, save me. Lord Jesus, save me. Why? Because you need Jesus to save you. Do do, do you see there's a twofold confession of the person of Jesus there? Uh, Unlike in Matthew 7, 21, 23, where these people come and say, Lord, Lord, they never acknowledge Jesus as you save us. Peter says, you are Lord and save me. (laughs) You are Lord and save me. Peter did not help Jesus in his own salvation. Peter was beginning to sink to death. And a few seconds later, he would have been deep in the sea. So to say, Lord, save me, is to say, Jesus alone saves. It is to say, I have despaired of my own ability to help in my own salvation. And Matthew tells us that immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and recovered Peter. (laughs) Oh, you got to have that Jesus. You need that Jesus who immediately comes and recovers you. What a Lord and a Savior. 
if the Lord does not stretch out his hand to save you, you shall surely drown. Now, whether Peter sinks, it doesn't matter. As long as the Lord stretches out his hand, Peter will be saved. <laughs> as long as Jesus stretches out his hand, immediately Peter will be saved. As long as Jesus has his hand stretched for you, he will not lose you to the winds of life. Even if momentarily you may take off your eyes off of him. So what are we saying? We are saying that Jesus Christ is God. And without him being God, there's no salvation for Peter who is sinking. There's no salvation for the disciples who are rowing. And there's no salvation for you. God alone, Jesus alone, saves sinners. But this Jesus is God who has clothed himself in sinless human flesh that he could endure the suffering of death because of your sin. And so he came not to calm the storms of our life, but to calm the storms of God's judgment on us because of our sin. The storms of our lives are nothing compared to the judgment that was due to us because of our sin. But we also have to acknowledge that as those who know the true God, we are not to be swayed or blown from one wind of doctrine to another because of things that happen in life. We know this, that the storms of our life come directly from the sovereign hand and will of our God. There's no storm that does not come through the nail-scarred hands. Not one. And because it's coming from him, it will not destroy you. It may put you on the edge, but it will never destroy you. He does this thing that he may teach his children about his ways. The ways of God upon the waters. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So it's Jesus who commanded the storms. And it's him who also made the storm to be still. And the waves to be hushed. And the psalmist says, Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. Are you glad that the waters are quiet? The waters of God's judgment are quiet like a small well-fed puppy. And he brought them to their desired heaven. So he says, in response to that, the word of the Lord says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So what you are God is thanksgiving. Praise the Lord for he has brought us to our desired heaven. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him 
in the assembly of the elders. And because the Lord has accomplished his work for your salvation, he says to you and I, take courage. <laughs> it is I. Do not be afraid. So even at the point of death, that still holds. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Because he says, in John 14, if I remember, that he will receive us to himself. And Brother Stan and I, I think we talked about that a few days ago or last week. He will. And when you see him, he is going to be decked in glory and majesty. And you are going to be so scared. And you say, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. Praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you again to thank you and worship you. Because you alone are worthy of glory and honor and worship. Even your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who delivered us from the great waters of sin and judgment and calm the storms, that we may come in peace, that we may come and give thanksgiving for the accomplished redemption. Lord, we praise you and we honor you that you do not leave us to ourselves, just rowing all the way, trying to establish our own righteousness, just rowing and straining at the oars, but never reaching Bethsaida, never reaching heaven, all the way through the night, in the darkness, being battered by the storms, and still only traveled four miles. And yet, when you showed up, you completed the work of our salvation, fully justified, fully sanctified. We pray and we thank you for your obedience in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.